And we are in the book of Acts. And so the particular section that I'm going to be in this morning happens to be roughly 66 verses. So I've got one shot because I'm going to be out for a while. And uh, it's important that I do it all in one because it's one narrative inspired by Luke and the punchline comes at the end. So it'll be, uh, it should be a good time. We'll see what the Lord does and uh, see what I need to say and don't need to say along the way. It's a little bit difficult, beloved, when we come to where we're going to be in Acts. You know, we just left last week that wonderful section where we saw the Apostle Peter go and have those two healings. We saw the power of the gospel preached. We saw churches being established. And I told you we were going to head into Acts chapter 10, which really finds itself as one of the more significant portions of Scripture that we have in our Bible as it relates to our understanding of the church. In particular, beloved, unless you are an ethnic Jew this morning, or you have become a Jewish proselyte, your church history starts in Acts 10 when Gentiles are added to the church. And so if you're wondering about the significance of this morning for Acts 10, if you are a non-ethnic Jew or you have never become a proselyte of Judaism as a Gentile, then Acts 10 actually is where you find your heritage, your history, and really our gathering today is a result of what happened in Acts 10. But before we go to Acts 10, we cannot even understand the significance of Acts 10 until we go back to Genesis chapter 12. So if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 12 to begin. You see, when we come to a passage of Scripture like we're going to be in today, it's very difficult for a 2019 American mind to understand the significance of Jew and Gentile and what that means. It's difficult for us to grasp a concept where you can have such diversity, such conflict, uh, such outrage and horror against another people group and have it go on for so many years and then imagine a time when God intervenes and pulls two people together. You see, you have to understand something. If you're going to understand Acts 10 today, when I get there in a few minutes, you're going to have to understand my intro here so you really see the significance of this portion of Scripture. Or there's just no way Acts 10 is going to mean what it needs to mean and what Luke wanted it to mean. You say, what do I mean? Well, in Acts 10, beloved, where we're going to be, you're about to see for the first time since Genesis chapter 11 for the population of the earth to come under as one worshiping people. You say, what do I mean? Well, you realize that Genesis 11 is where the Tower of Babel took place. Everyone remember? Remember the Tower of Babel? Man was becoming proud and arrogant, trying to build this great tower for their own glory. God comes down and says... You're becoming arrogant and proud. I am going to take one humanity. So there's one race. That's why people say the myth of race and is, is made up. Because in Genesis 11, we have one race. Humanity. Under God. But they don't worship God. They worship themselves, don't they? So God says, I'm going to give you different languages. And what do we get from that? Tribes, tongues, and nations spread out across the earth from one humanity, one body of people in Genesis 11. Then Genesis 12, what does God do? Insert Genesis 12, God says of all of humanity, of every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
I am going to elect and pick out one people group that I'm going to use to reach all of the nations. The head of that is going to be Abraham, and that nation is going to be the nation of Israel, and they're going to be my Jewish chosen people. Notice Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, from all your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And look at the last line in verse 3. And in you, Abraham, notice, not just the Jewish nation, not just Israel, not just the elect chosen people. They may be elect, but they're not elite, as one person has said. Because all the families of the earth will be blessed. Sometimes we miss that in Genesis 12.3. God's going to start with the nation of Israel, the Jews. But His plan all along is to reach all the peoples of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And His select people, the Jewish nation, are to be the ones that are supposed to do that. And so now you have established, for the first time in the history of the world, one people group that has a special access to God and a special way God wants them to worship, right? You realize that when we hit Genesis 12 now, now you have two people groups on planet Earth. Ready? You have Jews and you have Gentiles. A Jew comes from the line of Abraham. A Gentile is everybody else on planet Earth that's non-ethnically Jewish. So in this room, this would probably be a room full of all Gentiles. Is, is anybody in here ethnically Jewish? Yeah, two of you, ethnically Jewish. And did you ever, did you practice Judaism? Not really. Kayla, did you practice Judaism? Mm -hmm. Wow, for how many years? I still yeah. Holidays, yeah. Yeah. So, Messianic Jews gets into it. We have, let's break down our two people groups and get to that. So, we've got two people groups. Jews, ethnic Jews, and Gentiles. But sometimes, Gentiles would come over and become proselytes in some degree to Judaism and would embrace the civic, the ceremonial, the dietary functions of Judaism. So, now you've got two people groups. You've got ethnic Judaism and Gentiles, everybody else on the planet, but sometimes Gentiles would come over and become some measure of a proselyte. But, but what's confusing about that is sometimes when Gentiles would come over, they'd become partial proselytes. So for example, a male may say, I want to become a practicing Jew, but I'm not going to be a full proselyte because I'm not going to embrace all the ceremonial functions of Judaism and I'm not going to be circumcised as an adult. You wouldn't become a full proselyte. So you've got two people groups on planet Earth, beloved. As history unfolds, think about the rivalry that breaks out between Jew and Gentile. Who's in the promised land when the Jews are supposed to go? Gentiles. And God says, destroy them. You've got Jew and Gentile fighting against each other. And beloved, last week I, I think I made a timestamp of about... 6,000 years from creation to Acts, and that was, a, that was a, a misstatement because by the time you hit Genesis 12, you're about 2,000 years from creation, and by the time you hit Acts 10, you're probably another 2,000 years from creation. So from Genesis 12 to Acts 10, you've got 2,000 years or so. So beloved, for 2,000 years, Jew and Gentile have been feuding and hating one another. 
You want to know how bad it gets? Well, the Jews came to believe that anything that was even touched by a Gentile was unclean and could corrupt them as a people group. Let me tell you one historian describing what Judaism at this time would have thought about Gentiles. A strict Jew wouldn't have had anything to do with a Gentile. In fact, a strict Jew would, have even been, would not have even been the guest in a Gentile's house, nor would he have had a guest at his house since Gentiles were unclean. The scribal law said, the dwelling place of the Gentiles is unclean. In fact, this author goes on, it is considered that the dust or the dirt from a Gentile country was defiled. And if anybody that was a Jew happened to be in a Gentile country and dirt was on their feet and they tracked it into Israel, that area where they stepped, where Gentiles once walked on the dirt, became a defiled place. It never mingled with Israel's soil, just stayed their continuous defiling in the land. Consequently, whenever they left Gentile country, they'd be told the famous line, to dust off their feet. This is how Jews felt, that Gentiles were unclean. In fact, listen to this. If milk was drawn out of a cow by a Gentile hands, it was not allowed to be consumed by Jews, so you had to make sure you checked on who provided your milk. Bread and oil, for example, prepared by a Gentile, could be sold to a stranger, but could never be used by a Jew. No Jew would eat with a Gentile either. I mean, it was, it was one of the most offensive things for a Jew to imagine they would have a Gentile come into their home and have a meal it would be to defile their entire house. <coughs> Jewish houses, you couldn't leave him in a room if he did come into your house, or he'd defile that whole room if a Jew left that room and the Gentile was still in the room. Cooking utensils, for example, if they were bought from a Gentile, they had to be purified by fire and water before they could be used. Any article that was in the hands of a Gentile was considered unclean. If you had, for example, a weaving shuttle, and that weaving shuttle was made out of wood that was grown in a grove where Gentiles had worshipped a false god, you had to burn up the shuttle. Not only that, you had to find every piece of cloth ever produced in it and burn it too. There was total separation. You can't even begin to understand the prejudice, the, the separation the, in the self-righteous heart, the racism that could grow between Jew and Gentile. But it wasn't all totally unhealthy. Remember, God told the nation of Israel to be a set-apart and holy people. And so they had laws, like in Leviticus 11, to have certain foods they could eat and customary diets they could have and ceremonial cleansings. Why? Because God wanted all the Jewish nation of Israel, to tell the whole world, we are going to be set apart and separate and careful about how we live to honor our God. And the Jewish nation was to tell all the other nations, come and see what it looks like to carefully walk before one true God. Not polytheism with many gods. Monotheism with one God. And so much of Judaism, while it got disturbed and messed up and became prejudiced, much of it you could have holy, godly, faithful Jewish people just trying to live a careful life and their conscience would constantly be plagued with the reality that I cannot do anything that would contaminate what God wants me to keep set apart. So you've got the merging of what God required and oftentimes a self-righteous heart. And sometimes it was tough for the Jews even to work their conscience through that and how to navigate it. Within Judaism, you've got truly saved Jews who trusted in God by faith. And you had self-righteous, unsaved Jews who thought their works made them acceptable to God within Judaism. And then you even have proselytes, right, that became Jewish that were truly saved as well, like Rahab. Or like um, um, 
Moses' father, Jethro, or the Ninevites, the sailors, uh, the sailors that Jonah preached to, and the Ninevites that Jonah preached to. True proselytes to Judaism. So, beloved, when you have all that as your background, now turn to Acts chapter 10. 2,000 years of a break between Jew and Gentile. Half of it, we could say, could become self-righteous and corrupt. And half of it, beloved, was healthy and God-honoring and God told them to do this. So you could imagine when we hit Acts 10, when Peter is going to be told to go to the Gentiles, he is about to have a serious lesson from God because his conscience can't even fathom what's being told to him. He can't even fathom that God may be asking him to pull in the Gentiles into an all-Jewish church. Remember, by now the church is all Jews and some Samaritans have been added under Philip after Philip's preaching in Samaria. They were half-breeds, and so God had to spend the Spirit in a special way to show you need to add the Samaritans. But to add, they were half-Jews, at least. To add Gentiles to the worshiping people would have been the greatest offense that would have felt, even by faithful Jews. They would have been feeling like they were violating before God what He had called them to do ceremonially, civilly. If you know what happens in the temple, even if a proselyte Gentile became a Jew, they had a special area um, within the temple that was, that was delegated where Gentiles that had been proselytes worshipped. So you still didn't even have worship together between Jew and Gentile. What you have in Acts 10, beloved is you have the first time, we say, since Genesis 11, where there is the capacity for all of humanity to come to God on the same footing, the same way, having the same access for the first time since Babel. You cannot underestimate what is going on in Acts 10. It is so significant. And beloved, we are the fruit of what happened in Acts 10. This congregation that gathers. We're the ends of the earth that came out of Acts 10. So, let's just jump into our narrative here and just let it unfold. And uh, I heard recently from someone that when you're listening to a lot of content, you have to put your auditory A game on. <laughs> I'm about to cover some serious ground, so I'm going to need your auditory A game. You guys ready for it? Can you hang in there? Okay, here we go. Five historic scenes that unfold how God included the Gentiles into the church. And beloved, this is our church history if you're a Gentile. This is how you began and got started. And let's begin. Scene one, God seeks out and here's the prayer of a Gentile soldier. It's interesting through this whole passage, you see God seeking, you see human responsibility and man responding, you see God's sovereignty and human responsibility married this whole passage. Scene one, God becomes the seeker to a Gentile soldier. Notice verse one. Now there was a man in Caesarea, which is a coastal town, a beautiful town. And Caesarea was the place where Pilate held his incredible army that he led. And so to be a soldier in Caesarea was to be really the cream of the crop under Pilate and his regime. And I, I think it's fascinating here that when God's going after a Gentile here, he goes after a, a almost proselyte, full proselyte, but not quite there. And notice this Gentile named Cornelius, a centurion. That means he led a hundred soldiers under him. So you have this soldier who you're going to see as a family man, who's a godly man, who has a hundred soldiers under him that he leads. A century of soldiers. 
And he was part of the Italian cohort. What's that mean? Well, it was probably likely that Rome went and got him from Italy. And they said, let's go get your best soldiers, let's bring them in, and let's help them be part of Rome's army, and I want you posted here. But he wasn't just a soldier. Notice, he was a devout man. One who feared God with his whole household and gave many alms, that is, give sacrifices, to the Jewish people. And he prayed to God continually. You may say, Pastor, it says here that he feared God. What does that mean? Well, through the book of Acts, we're going to see it here. We're going to see it in Acts 13. We're going to see it in Acts 16. God-fears became the name of those who were Gentiles, non-ethnic Jews, who hadn't quite fully become proselytes of Judaism, and yet they, they had a reverence for God and a reverence for the God of the Jews and a reverence for Judaism. However, they hadn't become fully proselytized into Judaism. So, this is very, very interesting. Look closely. He feared God. You say, is he a, a believer? Is, is Cornelius a true God follower? I mean, it says he fears God, he's devout, he prays. No. You can be religious and still be unsaved. But as much exposure as he had to revelation on some level, this was a soft-hearted pagan. You know we have them. We have hard-hearted pagans, maybe like Paul was, and soft-hearted pagans. Cornelius is a soft-hearted pagan. And we know that God is drawing him because God hears his prayer and answers it. But we know God does not accept the prayers of the wicked, but God hears the prayers of Cornelius. So he's not going to get saved until the next chapter. But God's already drawing him, and God is seeing the soft heart of this man. Notice, he prays. About the ninth hour of the day, verse 3, 3 o'clock, he clearly saw the vision of an angel of God who just came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he fixed his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, Your prayers and alms have been ascended as a memorial before God. Think of that language, beloved. He's not yet been born again into the New Testament ministry of knowing who Jesus Christ is, but God's accepting his prayer as a memorial. It smells sweet to God. And you say, well, what does the unsaved prayer look like of this Gentile who's not yet saved? Well, we can assume when Peter shows up later, Peter gives him Christ. He gives him the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we could assume that maybe his prayer is something like this. Lord, I want to worship you as the one true God. I'm hearing all these rumblings about this guy named Jesus the Nazarene, who's supposedly the Messiah, who's the fulfillment of the prophets that I've studied and learned about in Judaism. I'm not sure if I believe that. Will you give me clarity? That's probably his prayer, because when Peter comes, that's a message he delivers and says, your prayers are answered, I'm here. This is a soft-hearted unbeliever praying to God, and God answers his prayer. Very, very interesting. I like thinking about it that way because it puts into perspective what's very real to us when we even think about our own conversion, right? Some of the time we are praying and asking the Lord to give us clarity and through a sequence of events and a timeline, God brought people and He brought circumstances and He answered prayer to bring us to Himself. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty merging together. God seeks Him out, but He's soft-hearted. I love that. So He prays this prayer. He gives it to the Lord. And notice his obedience. Notice what he does next. When the angel who was speaking in verse 7 left, 
uh, oh, excuse me, let me go back here to verse 5. Uh, verse 4, and fixing his gaze and him being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and alms are memorial to God. Verse 5, now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon. This is what the angel said. Simon, who is Peter. We just left Peter in the last chapter about 12 hours up the road in Joppa. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Stop there for a second. Interesting note by Luke. Tanner, the... I mean, excuse me, um, si um, he's staying with a tanner named Simon. You say, why is that significant? Well, remember, to be with a man who would deal with dead animals was to be with someone who was unclean. Peter's staying with him now. We went even, not even sure, maybe a couple years up there in Joppa ministering to the church. So what I think Luke's indicating is Peter's Jewish heart that knows he needs to see right separation and ceremonial functions may be getting softened to some of the ideas that God's preparing him for. Notice, Simon Peter's there five. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Verse seven. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, beloved, just a note, a commentary on that. Notice how obedient he was. No hesitation. The angel spoke. And this soft-hearted, unsaved Gentile responded in immediate obedience. Don't you think he was probably wondering, Angel, if you got so much good news, can't I go? No, you need to send some men and bring him back. Why? Because the providence of God is unfolding because God has a lesson to teach Peter too. And Peter's going to have to walk into a Gentile's home for the first time and learn some very important lessons for himself. God's after shepherding the Jews and God's after shepherding the Gentiles because God loves unity and he's about to bring them together. This is the heart of God. It's beautiful. So that's scene one. Scene one is there. God seeks out and hears the prayers of a Gentile soldier. Scene two. God shepherds Peter's imbalanced Jewish perspective. Dot, 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 and changes him forever. <laughs> God shepherds Peter's imbalanced Jewish perspective and changes him forever. I don't say sinful perspective. I say imbalanced perspective because Jesus had already started to institute the ideas that he was about to teach to Peter. For example, when foods were talked about being unclean, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, Yeah, I did say that there was foods that are unclean, but what defiles a man is what comes out of him, not what comes into him. And in that, Jesus makes every food clean. The, the, everyone was trying to figure out what was Jesus saying. Jesus was introducing the idea that since I have come, all the ceremonial functions of the law that were required for Jews is fulfilled in me. So you don't need those anymore. But the disciples were struggling to grasp that. So it's in balance. He needs some shaping yet. And frankly, he's got a little bit Leviticus 11 on his mind already, you're about to see, which told him specifically which food to eat and which food not to eat. And that would have been in his conscience. And you should know, for as we're going to see in, in uh, Acts 15 that comes up, and even in Galatians and other times, even a saved Jewish person, ethnically Jewish, had to work through very difficult things in their conscience as it related to the ceremonial aspects of Judaism, even after they were born again. Because it's embedded in their conscience. In fact, John Anderson was telling me that when John MacArthur used to go on Larry King, Larry King is Jewish, and one time they were offset, and John MacArthur and Larry King were talking, and Larry King told 
Dr. MacArthur, he said, I literally want to vomit when I had envisioned the idea of having an unclean meat go in my mouth, into my stomach, because of how much I look at what God says. It defiles me. It makes me want to throw up in his Judaism. So we have to understand there's something very deep embedded into the conscience there of the Jew. And so we can be sympathetic to Peter that he's about to speak back to the Lord here pretty strongly when he's told what to do. But we can be sympathetic that his conscience may have fired at him in that moment. So, God's going to shape Peter. Verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city... Now, don't you love the providence? Here you have those sent from Cornelius. They're showing up. Oh, wait. In God's perfect timing, Peter happens to be out praying. And he's going to get hungry. And they're going to arrive. I mean, it's just... The human dynamic of the way God works is unbelievable. Peter went on the housetop about the sixth hour of the day to pray, to give a, a devotion to the Lord. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. Commentators have all kinds of funny things. Maybe they're cooking downstairs and all this stuff. I don't know. He's hungry. Guy gets hungry. I don't know why he's hungry. I get hungry a lot. <laughs> he says they're making preparations for the food. Maybe he did smell it. I don't know. Verse 10. They're making preparations downstairs. The food. He gets hungry. But notice, he falls into a trance. So now you've got... An angel going to Cornelius and now really an angel going to Peter because God's going to bring them together. And it has to be supernatural to break down this 2,000 year dividing wall. Verse 11, And he saw the sky open, an object like a great sheet. When you see great sheet, it's probably a description like a, um, like a ship, like a, a sailing sheet on a ship that goes up, big long four corners, drops down, and then it's going to unfold and we're going to see all these animals. Notice, the sheet comes down, the sail is the word I was looking for, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures and earth and bir- from the earth and birds of the air. Verse 13, and a voice came to him. Now this is, this is fantastic. Get up, Peter, kill or slaughter and go eat. Literally, slaughter an animal and go enjoy it. Now Peter's thinking, you've got to be kidding me. There's unclean animals in front of me. And even the clean animals, I have to go through a whole process before I'm even going to consider eating some meat. And this voice from heaven just told me, rise up, kill, eat. That's not a hunting strategy. It's, it's, a, it's a line to a Jewish man who would have literally hit him at the deepest part of his senses in his religion before God. A saved Jew, by the way. Peter. But Peter says, look, Peter says, no chance. By no means, Lord. Literally, the idea would be, I can't, I won't, I must not, Lord. He knows God's talking to him. I mean, this is a perfect guy, Peter. I mean, how many times does Peter speak back to the Lord and the Lord has to go, all right, Peter, <laughs> I'm coming again. I, I was laughing this week thinking, man, I want to be like Paul, but I'm so much like Peter. <laughs> I, I, maybe why I study Paul so much. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Again, the voice came a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now he's thinking, what in the world? For millennia you've been telling me stuff is holy and stuff is unholy. And now you're telling me everything in front of me is cleansed and no longer unholy? This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up to the sky. 
Now you have to understand the Jewish mind would have struggled so much because he would have had probably a mix of Leviticus's actual commandments to be set apart and maybe even some elitism to say, but we're the Jewish people, we're the chosen nation, we do this and that makes us elite. And we know that's in the heart because when you get over to Acts 15, they start to struggle with not just being elect, but elite. I don't know all that's in Peter's heart. But the good news is, beloved, this is the moment where God sanctifies bacon. I told my kids yesterday with grandma at breakfast, I was doing this story and I said, kids, you got to understand, this is the moment in church history where God says bacon is legit to eat. And my oldest son says, Dad, what did he, I wrote it down. He says, Dad, I would not want to live at that time. I love bacon. <laughs> and I said, Amen. <laughs> How do you miss that in this story? I mean, that is a good moment for us. Now, for the first time in history, Jew and Gentile can fellowship over bacon. This is good news. It's funny, but if we back off, for Peter, this was not funny. He was not funny at all. He was struggling. Notice 17. Peter was perplexed in his mind. What in the world just happened? To what vision which he had seen might be? Behold. The, now, So he's seen the vision, right? He comes out of the vision. Now behold, the men sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon House, appeared at the gate. So think about this. He steps back. He's perplexed. He's thinking. He's wondering what's happening. Providence of God. Here's an answer to your prayer, Peter. I've got some guys here that want to talk to you. God's timing is perfect. God's shepherding Peter. Notice 18. And calling out, they asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter's reflecting on the vision, they call out. Verse 19. 20. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgiving. So he's told by this voice, by this angel, don't push back. You've got to understand, for Peter... In that moment, he was about to be told to probably go with some men that were Gentiles where he was going to have to walk into their house, which would be defiling. But Peter obeys. Get up, go downstairs. Do not give them misgivings, assuming Peter was going to struggle. For I have sent them myself, Peter. Peter went down to the men and said, think about these men. Behold, guys, I'm the one you're looking for. They're thinking, what in the world? We just got here. And Peter said, no, God told me you're coming. I know what we need to do. What do you want me to do? You got something for me? Let's go. And he says this, What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. So immediately Peter's ears would have thought about the vision and he would have heard a Gentile. God, you sent a Gentile to talk to me and you want me to go with these men probably to his house? Okay. They said about him, He was a man spoken well by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send you to come to this house and hear a message from you. Notice that again. They said, Peter, we came for you because God told us that you have a message that you want to bring to us. 23. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. Already Peter's heart is softening to the idea of Gentiles. Scene 3. God orchestrates a meeting that changes everything. God orchestrates a meeting that changes everything. Notice verse 24. On the following day, 
He entered Caesarea. It's probably a 12-hour walk, so they had a pretty good hike that they went on. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he'd called together his relatives and close friends. Think about that. Cornelius went to all his close friends and relatives and said, Guys, I got a vision. God sent me to go get Peter. Maybe he has fully learned who Peter was to some degree by now. And God said he's going to bring a message back. You all should come. This is going to be a really important message. So Cornelius fills up his house for Peter's arrival. Notice 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. This is a humble, broken sinner desperate for answers. But Peter raised up saying to him, Stand up. And the translation you can get here is, I am just a mortal as well. 27. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. Cornelius had filled the room with all that he wanted to hear Peter's message. Now, this historic meeting, Peter states the obvious. I like this. Peter's a no-nonsense kind of guy. Let me just be blunt and just put the elephant out in the room, guys. I'm here, you're here. This is awkward for all of us. <laughs> 28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a Gentile or foreigner and to visit him. So they all know, you being here and us being here, th- this is a moment that's historic, particularly who Peter is. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Stop there. Peter's connecting dots from his vision. That 12-hour walk mixed with the message from God as he thought about it, he realized it wasn't just about unclean foods that God was talking to him about. It was about what he associated with unclean foods, which was Gentiles and their uncleanness. And for them to eat those foods, it defiled them. So they were defiled. And he realized, okay, God, the dietary laws that I would associate with filthy Gentiles Actually, you're saying you're removing those because you've got a bigger plan and a bigger purpose and they're not unclean even though they eat that stuff. Wow. This is a 2,000 year wall coming down. Wow. Because of Christ, Peter's realizing I no longer should call that unclean. 29. This is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I ask... For what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius, in verse 30 and 31, retells the story of his vision. Look at 30 and 31. Four days ago to this hour, I was praying at my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who's called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon, Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all present, notice, before God to hear what you've been commanded to tell us. Wow. Talk about a soft opportunity for evangelism. Because God was preparing all of this the whole way. Scene 4, notice, a Jew gains clarity. So Peter gets clarity in the moment and preaches the first New Covenant Gospel to the Gentiles. This is the first time in the history Peter's going to preach the Gospel. But you need to understand something about this as we're heading to the end of our time here. And it'll unfold in 11, 1 to 18 really fast. You've got to understand something. He's about to say, the Gospel that I'm preaching to you that you're not totally sure about, I'm going to describe it to you in detail. 
But there's a bigger point even being made here. When you come through Jesus Christ the same way I come through Jesus Christ, we no longer are on different footing as worshipers. I no longer worship in this part of the temple and you in that part of the temple. We are going to be one new man, as Ephesians 2 says. The dividing wall is about to come down. And for the first time since Genesis 11 and 12, one people group are about to be able to come together and worship under one king at the same place with the same access with no need for the ceremonial functions to make them more righteous or more acceptable. Everyone can now come. Beloved, this has been in the mind of God since before time. This is what the New Testament calls the mystery. Here's your passage on the mystery where Jew and Gentile become one new man and the dividing wall rips down. Look at what he says. Opening his mouth, 34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. I love that. What a statement. That's the most important statement in this entire narrative. Not only is God not partial on who gets the gospel, but He's not partial on who can come to Him as a worshiper the same way, for the same reason, with the same head, the same Christ, for the first time. Right now. This has been in the mind and heart of God. The Jews thought God was partial, right? He's partial to us. He's about us. He's all about us. And yet the Jews missed their mission. What was the Jews' purpose? To be so holy that all the other nations say, Wow! We want that God. But they were so disobedient all the time, they blew it. He's saying, You should know that God's Never been partial, but for a time he picked out the Jewish nation. But now in the church age, he's opening it up to all get to come to him the same way, at the same access, the same worshipers, under the same temple, at the same place, under the same pastor as one new man. And beloved, this is a prefiguring of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll not only be under one king universally, we'll be under one king geographically at the same temple, at the same location, all worshiping in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a picture of heaven. Except here, it's universal. Then it will be geographical. One king and we're all under him. God starts right here to set up what's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. I love that. It's absolutely incredible. No more court of Gentiles. No more court of Jews. God's not partial. All come the same way. How do we know? Look at verse 35. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome. What's God after? A real God-fearing heart. 36. Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching, preaching, uh, preaching through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus the Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. 39. We are witnesses... All things he's done, the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Beloved, don't miss that line. Why should you be grateful today? Why should you be thankful today? Because God had in his heart Gentiles and he saved them through making Jesus die and bleed on a bloody wooden cross and take the wrath that you deserve so you could have access to him. And then God raised him on the third day and he became visible. Not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen before God, that is, to those who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify Him in 42, the one who has been appointed to God as judge and the living and the dead. 
Of him all the prophets bear witness, and through his name everyone believes and receives forgiveness of sin. Beloved, you want to know how prepared God had made these people for the gospel? 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them who were listening to the message, and they were all saved. Amazing. What happens next? Peter's amazed. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter are amazed. What do they do? 46, 47, 48. What do they do? They baptize them. What does Peter say? They're legit. They've got the Spirit. We baptize them. We're adding them to the church. Beloved, anytime you see baptism, it's church membership and addition to the church. So, you say, Darren, how are we going to do 18 verses in five minutes? Just like this. 11, 1 to 18 has one single point, And it retells the whole story. Look at verse 1. So this is your sixth, your, uh, sixth scene. I think I said five scenes. It's actually six. Here's your bonus scene. Did I say six? Well, now it's six. Sorry, note takers. Messianic ethnic Jews struggle to grasp God's plan for the Gentiles. This is your sixth scene. And it's real simple. Because it retells the exact same narrative and then it has two different editions. Notice. Now the apostles and the brethren, chapter 11, verse 1, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So word spread. Gentiles are being saved by God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Beloved, even saved Jews were struggling to understand how God could include Gentiles. What happens in verse 4 all the way to verse 16, they retell the story of what just happened. And those believers, when they hear it, notice verse 15 of chapter 11. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as He did upon us at the beginning. Speaking of Acts 2. And if you want to make sure that He did get saved and it was genuine, look back at 14. And He will speak words to you by which you will be saved. They were all born again. Verse 17 now. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift that He gave to us, Jews, Peter talking to his Jewish brethren, after believing in the same Lord Jesus Christ, who was that I could stand in, who am I to stand in God's way? Verse 18, the church is unified again. This is why you have to finish the section. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. And this is the beginning of the gospel going to the Gentile nations. I want you guys some homework, okay? I want you to go read Ephesians 2 and 3 now after hearing today. And you will hear the dividing wall being ripped down in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, Paul being commissioned to the Gentiles and the church becoming one new man. You know what that teaches us? One big point. God not only has a heart for the nations, that's very important, but God loves unity of His people. <laughs> and He loves them to be unified and together and to be one new man. And here's the other thing to take away from this. God is not partial. To saved people that have prejudice and racism in their heart, God wants them shepherded and, and, and cared for and called to see a biblical view of the church. And for those that are not saved, this passage proves that what brings unity is conversions. 
And lastly, whenever you read the mystery from here on out, you know where to go to read where it happened. This is the mystery of Christ in the church of Jew and Gentile becoming one. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. An incredible narrative. It's amazing to think about that in your mind and heart, all the way back in creation, all the way back at the Tower of Babel, all the way back with Abraham, you had us in your mind. If we are saved in this room, you were already thinking about us Gentiles and even those with Jewish background in here to be part of your church and added. And Lord, we don't want to disrupt what you have created. We want to pursue unity. We want to have a heart for the nations. We want to see more Gentiles saved because Romans 11 says, Lord, that you're going to save so many Gentiles. You're going to provoke the Jews to jealousy and we're going to see national repentance. So may we be as obedient as Cornelius and Peter so we can walk in the good works you've prepared for us and not get in the way, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.